0: 5 today, Micah chapter 5, give you a chance to turn there if you'd like, and a little bit of a review while you're hunting down Micah chapter 5, and while you're doing that, greetings to the Hutchinsons, we are glad to have you. Do you live in San Antonio? Oh, Bernie, beautiful Bernie. We have a retired physician who lives in Bernie, Dr. Cleveland. His wife just recently passed away. Have you crossed paths? Wonderful, wonderful person, godly man. Anyway, we're glad to have you here. Well, Micah chapter 5. Listen, folks, in Micah 4, uh, we spoke about Micah's prophecy about impending conquest by Babylon. It happened historically, 586 B.C., to besiege Jerusalem. Why? Why? Well, because of the sins of my people, Israel, Jewish people. The consequence of sin was that they would be assaulted by the Babylonians to destroy Israel? No, 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 no. That's not what God's about, to deliver her from rebellion. And I mentioned to you it was quite a, rather a fascinating prophecy by Micah because the Babylonian Empire was not a factor in the day in which he wrote. It was the Assyrian Empire. Babylonians didn't come to be in positions of influence uh, for 150 years later. Micah couldn't have come up with this on his own. It's inspired scripture, don't you see? So God, who sees the end from the beginning, used Micah as a vessel to tell his people about the future. The Babylonians are coming. They did, history tells us, in 586 B.C. So that's the general context. It continues now in verse 1 of chapter 5. Take a look. Micah's still speaking. Now, muster yourselves in troops. He's warning the residents of Jerusalem because the foe is about to come. Muster yourselves in troops. And look at how he refers to the residents of Jerusalem. Daughter of troops. That's not a good term. It means you who will soon be surrounded by foreign troops. It would be better for you to be considered daughter of Almighty God, but because you've hardened yourselves against him, this is what we refer to you as, daughter of troops. The city of peace, Jerusalem, in Hebrew we call it Yerushalayim. Maybe you can hear a little bit the word shalom at the end, shalom meaning peace, Yerushalom, shalayim, city of peace. has not ever experienced peace really, not down to this very day. Why, why? Folks, when we turn our backs from the prince of peace, we have conflict and turmoil. That's the case. So she's referred to as daughter of troops and Micah speaks of a future event so certain of its accomplishment, he speaks of it as if it's already taken place. Look, they have laid siege to us. And then the text says, with a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. In the ancient world, a uh, conquering um, warrior would humiliate his subjugated foe in such fashion. Slap or a rod, something like this. And so the ruler of uh, Israel is going to experience this public humiliation. Now, um, what I'm about to say may be of absolutely no interest to you unless you're a history buff. L- let me just address it and then we'll move past it we don't know who specifically that ruler of israel was why if what micah is speaking of was the invasion by the assyrians you see there were two Assyrians invaded Jerusalem first and then later Babylon. Sometimes Micah goes back and forth and we can't discern specifically who he's speaking about. So if this this is the Assyrian invasion he's speaking of, it would have been under someone named Sennacherib. And if that's the case, the ruler in Israel to be humiliated would be Hezekiah. On the other hand, if it's the later invasion in 586 by the Babylonians that he is now uh, alluding to, that would have been under Nebuchadnezzar and the ruler in Israel to be humiliated would have been Zedekiah, Hezekiah or Zedekiah. Now, you know something, folks? Your faith and mine doesn't hinge on which one it is, does it? It's just one of those biblical things. We we, we will just bow before the fact. We don't understand all things. We know enough <laughs> to worship the king of kings. But in this case, we don't know specifically which king of Israel it is. It doesn't matter. Here's what matters. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. Everyone in the day knew it. It was the seat of government. The Sanhedrin met there. It was the equivalent of our Congress. Also, it was the seat of religious thinking. All the big shot rabbis hung out in Jerusalem. All the PhDs, uh, the theologians of the day. That was Jerusalem. That's where, you, that's where you are. That was a big time place. It was city on a hill. Jerusalem. Now, I want you to see the contrast between Jerusalem and the next city we're going to be introduced to in verse 2. And I'll warn you in advance, we're going to camp out at verse 2 for the um, probably most of the remainder of this class. So if you would like to leave now, I totally understand. So look, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah. Have, Have you ever heard of Bethlehem? Yeah has. Anyone else? <laughs> Have you heard of Bethlehem? Yeah. Do you think there's anyone in our contemporary world who has not heard of Bethlehem? Folks, I got to tell you, it has got to be one of the most well-known cities on earth, which makes this even all the more ironic because in Micah's day, almost no one heard of it. It was one of the most insignificant places on earth. Here is the contrast. The capital of Israel, verse 1, it's going to be under siege because of the sin of its residents. And now the scene transfers itself to verse 2 to a rather insignificant place. In fact, it's so insignificant, can you see embedded in the verse what Micah says with reference to Bethlehem? It is too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's too small. It's too insignificant. It's too unimportant. And, just to prove it, Israel was in Egyptian bondage for 400 plus years. She cried out to God, save us. By the way, he hears that cry. If you demand your rights, God turns a deaf ear. We don't have rights. If you cry out for grace and mercy, ah. So at that time, Israel did save us, deliver us. God did through Moses. And then Israel embarks on 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And she's about to enter a place of promise. God promised it. The land of Canaan, Israel. But before she entered, Moses' tenure comes to an end. He never gets to enter the promised land. He passes the baton to, of all people, his armor-bearer, Joshua. Interesting. He doesn't pass it to a military leader, to any one of the religious leaders. He passes it to a guy who was his valet, so to speak. Why? Who could learn more about how to lead than the one who was closest to the leader? Joshua was trained up by Moses to lead the people. So God says, Joshua, you're going into the land, but here's the deal. It is to be allotted according to tribes. You have 12 tribes. Each one has a designated piece of real estate in this land. So the tribe of Dan is here, and the tribe of Issachar is here, and the tribe of Gad and Asher and Naphtali, and this is not an option. You will not negotiate for land. You will occupy the land I have allotted specifically and precisely for each of the 12 tribes, Joshua tell them what land they get. And there's a tribe called Judah. And the tribe of Judah gets a certain piece of real estate in the promised land. God said, remove the people there. Now, if you have a problem with that, God, how could you do this? Ask him. I don't have to defend him. I'm, I'm just, I, I'm following him. I'm worshiping him. But if you're troubled by what he did, maybe you'll get a chance to ask him one day. Anyway, he said, remove the people in the land, establish yourself and worship me and glorify me there. Okay, so Judah gets some land. And the cities in the tribal allotment given to Judah are recorded for us quite precisely in Joshua chapter 15. But what is noticeable in Joshua chapter 15 is that Bethlehem is nowhere to be found. Bethlehem is a city in Judah allotted to the tribe of Judah. We all know of Bethlehem. Are you kidding me? That's got to be one of the most significant places on earth. People make pilgrimage there. Are you kidding? Didn't even make the cut in Joshua chapter 15. You can check me out on this. I've only been wrong never. (laughs) My wife's not here to dispute that. Joshua 15, you will not see Bethlehem listed. Folks, I'm telling you, it was so insignificant that it was an afterthought. It was an asterisk. It was a parenthesis in the tribal allotment of Judah. It was no big deal. It came to be a big deal because of an event that happened there. And it's just the way of God to confound the wisdom of the world, to turn societal values and expectations upside down. Down. We would think Rome or Jerusalem or Mecca or Houston, <laughs> Bethlehem. Anyway, that's what it is. Too little among the clans of Judah, and, and 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 Micah refers to it as Bethlehem Ephratah. Earlier in the Bible, you'll see the place name Ephrath. Ephrath is the same as Ephratah. Same thing. Bethlehem, Ephratah. And the word Ephratah means fruitful. Why? Uh, Bethlehem was a municipality in a more general region called fruitful because of its agricultural fertility. Bethlehem in the region of agricultural fruitfulness, Ephratah is the equivalent of county. So, for instance, we're in Houston. Really? Yeah, Houston in Harris County. You see? Bethlehem? Yeah, Bethlehem in Ephratah. But I ask you a question. Why was it necessary for Micah to say Bethlehem Ephratah? Why could Micah just have said Bethlehem? What are your thoughts? Two Bethlehems, you are correct. Did you know that? There are actually two biblical Bethlehems. This one, Bethlehem, is located five to six miles southwest of Jerusalem. I have been there. Has anyone been there? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bethlehem uh, is about five to six miles, Bethlehem Ephratah, Five to six miles southwest of Jerusalem. But there's another one, much further north. It is located about six miles south of a mountain range called Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel. You know about Mount Carmel? That's where Elijah had a contest with the prophets of Baal. Remember all that? Okay, so, uh, nearby that range of mountains called Mount Carmel in the north. It's along the Mediterranean coast. It's quite beautiful. Uh, You could go there today. It's an actual place. This is not mythology. This is like real stuff. This is God's word. Uh, There is another Bethlehem. It is in the tribal allotment of Zebulun. Now, folks, Bethlehem was not important in its day, but in the mind of God, it is so intensely important. He wants us not to be mistaken about its locale. So when Micah says Bethlehem, lest any of us say which one, God says this one, not Bethlehem of Zebulun, no, Bethlehem of Judah. Get it right, because the most significant event in human history is about to take place, not in that Bethlehem, but in this Bethlehem, the one in the tribal allotment of Judah, the one in the county of Ephratah. Okay, so there, that's what it says. From you, now that we have it located, one, a personage, one, will go forth for me. He will do my bidding. God is speaking here. He will serve me. He will represent me. From you, Bethlehem. Which one? To one in Judah's place. One will go forth for me. What will he do? To be ruler in Israel. Well, what is it? Haven't we had rulers? Yeah. Your last ruler got smacked with a rod by the Assyrians and or Babylonians because their sin made them subject to predators and subsequent rulers in Israel have exploited the people and misused their position. Gee, that's far-fetched. I'm sure glad that's not happened in the good old U.S. of A. Israel's leaders got so removed from its constituency that they were into self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. I'm so glad we're immune to those kinds of things today. But this ruler, in contradistinction from those, the one who comes from insignificant Bethlehem, Ephratah, this one will go forth for me. They represent themselves. This one will represent my causes. He will be ruler in Israel. Tell us more, the reader is saying. Micah, tell us more. Okay, his goings forth are from long ago. In fact, from the days of eternity, from the days of eternity. Could I ask you a question? Who do you think that is referring to? What do you think, Randy? I think, well, Randy said it's referring to Christ, which, by the way, means Messiah. If you are like Randy and think this verse is referring to Messiah, you are in good company. I shall prove it to you. Can you turn to Matthew chapter 2? Matthew chapter 2. You are familiar with this, but I'd like for us to reflect on it just for a bit. Uh, Matthew 2 is really easy to find. That's why I chose it. I don't really know what's in it, but it's easy to get there. First book of the New Testament, Matthew. Why is it called Matthew? He wrote it. What's he writing about? It's a biography of Jesus, Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. You see, even Matthew wants to make sure it's not Bethlehem of Zebulun that we think he's referring to. No, it's Bethlehem of Judea. After Jesus was born there in the days of Herod, So we're being moved from Micah's prophecy about 700 years into the future right now. It's in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Why? Well, he's a king and he didn't want a competitive a competitor to the office. He was troubled, and if the king is troubled, everyone's troubled, and so it says all Jerusalem with him. So Herod, verse 4, gathering together, Herod did this. He gathered together, look, all the chief priests and scribes of the people, you know who they are? Those are the theologians of the day, scribes, chief priests. These are the religious leaders of ancient Israel. They call the shots. You say, I think this about God. They say, it doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what we think. We have veto power on your thinking. We determine what you are to think spiritually and theologically. These are the chief priests. These are the people. They study the law of God all day long in ancient Israel and they are accorded respect as those who are the ultimate authority and handlers of truth, spiritual truth. Okay, Herod calls them together, chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born, where the Messiah. Now, Randy used the word Christ. It's very accurate. It's the same word as this, Messiah. In Hebrew, let's back up, Hebrew, Mashiach is Messiah, Mashiach. Then you get to um, Greek, and you New Testament language, Christos. Christos is the same as Messiah. And then you get to English, it's Christ. And what uh, Messiah and Christ means is anointed one. Will you forgive me? I used to think Christ... Was the last name of this one called Jesus? I didn't, you know, you have to learn, don't you? I didn't know these things. No, it means Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Anointed One. So, so these religious leaders, in answering Herod's question about where the Messiah, the Anointed One, would be born, uh, look what they answer, verse 5. They said to him, to Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. What prophet? The very one we're studying, Micah. And and then they quote the very verse we are studying, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They quote it in verse 6. Folks, here's the point. My people throughout our history, Jewish people throughout our history have always, always believed that when Messiah comes, he'll be birthed in Bethlehem. (laughs) And way back in the first century, the big shots of Judaism said that very thing. They invoked the prophecy of Micah and accorded to it authority. So I ask you this question, then why is it that most of my people by far Don't believe that Jesus is their Messiah today. I'll tell you why. Because we've turned our backs on what God has revealed to us. We have today eyes, but they do not see. Ears, they do not hear. Hearts, hardened. But that will not be forever. Forever. Even Micah in prior chapter chapters has alluded to the fact that there will come a day when this heart of stone, my people have, when these stuffed up ears and these blinded eyes will be open and we'll look upon him who we have pierced and recognize him as our Savior. So anyway, you know what God says? Because he's a good God. He says, uh, the whole issue of the Messiah, Savior, Redeemer, is so critical and important. Your whole eternity depends on it. I would be remiss unless I gave you some clear notion of who he is. I can't leave it to you to guess. Is it Reverend Moon? Is it going to be the next Caliph that the guy in Iran wants to usher in? Because knowing who the Messiah is is so critical God says, I would be remiss unless I uh, a, 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 unless I gave you signposts. I don't want to leave it to chance. And here's one of the signposts. Bethlehem. You'd be born in Bethlehem. You know what God is saying? Watch. Bethlehem. Take a look at Bethlehem. Then you say, oh, come on. You're reading too much into it. A lot of people were born in Bethlehem. Hang on. This is just one signpost of who the Messiah is. I can show you 300. In the Old Testament, 300. Now, if by chance this Jesus, Yeshua, was born in Bethlehem and we're making him into being a God, you say, do you think by chance this self-same Jesus could have precisely fulfilled 300 signposts pointing to the Messiah? Do you know what the mathematical probability of that happening is? It's ridiculous. It's an insult to someone's intelligence to say it just happened by chance. This is just one of them. Folks, make no mistake about it. There are pretenders to the throne, but Jesus is the real deal. He's the only one who has fulfilled the prophecies, the signposts pointing to the Messiah. And Micah, Micah announced his birth 700 years before it in fact happened. Do you know what Bethlehem means, by the way? House of bread. reader, got it. Beit, lechem. Beit means house and lechem means bread. Don't you think it's interesting that he who is the bread of life would have been born in the place called the house of bread? You know who else was born there? David. Jesus is in in David's line. King David was great. Oh. He's a predecessor, however, of a far greater king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus, also born in this otherwise insignificant place. And the readers are crying out, Micah, tell us more. Tell tell us more, okay. His goings forth are from long ago. That is not yet a reference to his eternality. Listen. Um, Do you know... Jesus' birth was not the beginning of Jesus' being. Around Christmas, we celebrate the enfleshment birth of Jesus, December 25th. You know, it's not very likely that that's the actual date of his birth. And you know what I think about it? It doesn't matter. He was born. God, transcendent deity, became enfleshed. I don't care what day it is. Let's all gather together and rejoice in the fact that God came near. Soon we'll celebrate resurrection Sunday, won't we? I don't really care about the day. I just care about the reality. He's risen as first fruits from death, and therefore we who believe on him will follow. Anyway. When Jesus was born, that was not the beginning of Jesus. When you and I were born, that's our beginning because we are not pre-existent. We know that at the point of our existence, for instance, Kate, Owen's birthday was what? I'm only doing this, Kate, to keep you awake. Yeah, no problem. January 31st, cute little Owen was born, but he's not pre-existent. None of us are. Only God is, because he has no beginning nor any end. Now, if Jesus, as we claim, is to be God, then his birth did not begin him. He has no beginning, and by the way, nor does he have any end. So what did he do before he came to be in existence? He pre-existed, and his goings forth are from long ago in human history. He went forth into the world in what's called his pre-incarnate appearances. Before he was enfleshed, he appeared. By the way, the word incarnation, the enfleshment of, 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 Jesus. Um, have you ever ordered chili con carne in a good restaurant? You know, the person comes over, what would you like? Chili? Uh, just, just want chili. no, I want chili con carne with meat, not just the beans, con carne meat listen listen incarnation listen that's when jesus became meat he was a pre-existent he always existed but not in a corporeal body he became embodied and fleshed he became meat at his birth what did he do before then just wait for december 25th no way He made his entry into the space-time dimension, and the Old Testament alludes to it in many cases. You have to be careful, uh, in, in false conclusions, but in many cases when you read the term angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's the Lord Jesus. For instance, Abraham in Genesis 18 was visited by three angels. I think one of them was the Lord. Now we don't, we could argue about, do you agree, Rita? Good, there's two of us. Hey, there you go. And Brenda, we'll throw in Brenda. So so a lot of times you read the Angel of the Lord. This is the pre incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it says his goings forth are from long ago. I mean, you know, he he left his father's abode a long time ago to to insert himself into the formula of human history, our space time dimension. But he is also from the days of eternity. Ah. So in, in an economy of words, if you read this carefully, Micah is showing us both the humanity and divinity of Christ. Humanity. He was born. Like we all are. Divinity. Ah. He comes from eternity. You don't. I don't. The humanity and divinity of Christ. Look. Let me show you this a little more clearly. Can you turn to John chapter one? Now John will be really easy to find because if you found Matthew, just go right. Jump over Mark and you're into Matthew, uh, into John. John chapter one, few verses familiar to many of you, but let me develop it just for a little bit and, uh, just to give you something to look forward to. We will be finished uh, before just about every other class in this building. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. You will get to Luby's before the Methodist, I promise you. <laughs> but hang in there just for a little bit while longer. Look, look, John chapter 1, look. In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with. God. And the word was God. And now I'm confused. And I feel like calling out to the author, which is it? And then I hear the author saying, both. And then I say, cannot be. This word cannot be both with God and God. Which is it? Both. Here is the mystery of the Trinity. Comprehensible? No. Absolutely not. I don't understand it. Believable? Sure. God can do anything. Here is the word with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Whoa. Now the word, you know, you think of words. Words are used for communication. But now uh, the word is shown to be a reference to a person. He. That is a masculine, male masculine singular pronoun. He. It doesn't say it. If the word was inanimate, it should say it was in the beginning. But it doesn't. It says he was in. So now, oh, my goodness. Now my brain's about ready to explode. Whoever the word is, is a person. And the person was with God, and the person is God. <gasps> and now I'm I'm getting nothing. That gets worse. Verse 3. All things came into being through him. Another masculine pronoun, him. Not through it. It's not, may the force be with you. It's not the Big Bang theory that happened. You know, basic particles of life came together spontaneously in the oceans, you know, uh, in in pre, who knows when, a long time ago, and, and complicated beings like us emerged through the process of evolution. Come on. Come on. Your watch can't come together by chance. Don't make me a subject of chance and monkeys. Come on. That's not, it's not true. All things came into being through Him. He not only is from the beginning in eternity past with God and God, He's the agent of creation. All things came into being through Him, meaning He is not created. He is creator. Which means, how did he come to be? He always was. He had no beginning nor any end. And therefore, he has the capacity, this one, to create all things. And in fact, it says, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Whoa. This one is categorically different. He, be creature, creator, everyone else is creature. It says right here. He, through him, everything came into being... Just to be clear, John says, and nothing has come into being that has come into being apart from him. Oh my goodness. Well, now I'm just screaming out. Who is this one? Well, you got to wait to verse 14. Take a look. And the word became flesh. You know who this one is? Exactly the same one Micah spoke about 700 years earlier. Exactly. This is the incarnation of the Logos. That's the Greek word for word, Logos. Who is person. Who had pre-existence. Who is the agent of creation. Who is the one born in Bethlehem Ephrata. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Could I tell you how significant that is? See the word dwelt? Um, It's the word tabernacled. Tabernacled. Tented. You know why that's important? When Israel was in her wilderness wanderings for 40 years, God said, I want you to construct a mobile tent. Carry it from place to place. I'll meet with you there. It's holy. Limited access. That's my point of contact between you and me. The tabernacle in the wilderness. And now that very word is invoked here in the New Testament by John And this word, who became flesh, tabernacled amongst us. So when we say, oh God, if you're there, how do I get to you? How do I know you? You are unseen. What is the point of contact between me and you? It's the word made flesh, who tabernacled amongst us. That's not arbitrary. That's important. That mobile tent, John is saying, is just a foreshadowing of the real tabernacle in our midst, the one who became enfleshed. And we saw his glory. What kind? Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. One of a kind. Listen to the Greek word. See the two words, only begotten, two words in English? It's one in Greek. Monogenes. You know, like monopoly. You got the whole thing. Ganes, there's no other like him, only begotten, son of God, nobody like him. He's special. What's special? Wait, for one thing, he's full of grace and truth. You could be gracious from time to time. You could tell the truth from time to time. But that doesn't find your identity nor mine. It does define his. Full of grace and truth. And this one is so significant to behold and know and lay hands on by faith that God didn't leave it to chance. People say, if you want Jesus, fine, I'll take Mohammed. You know, someone takes Moses. No, they're not equals. Monogonese. Are you kidding me? Signposts, one of the earliest of which is, watch Bethlehem. Take a look at Bethlehem. This one came from that particular place one will go forth Micah said for me for God to be ruler in Israel Israel's rulers were horrible this one will represent uh, God himself so folks uh, there is absolutely nothing new in the New Testament did you know that I'll tell you what I mean and maybe this will actually help you to pull the Bible together, there's something called the progress of revelation or progressive revelation, meaning God has something to reveal to us. He doesn't operate in the shadows. He doesn't keep secrets. He wants to reveal himself. That's what revelation means. He wants to reveal himself. But he does it progressively. Why? Because if he starts back here in Genesis and dumps the whole load of what he has to tell us on us, we can't handle it. Let's just be honest. We're a little slow. These are spiritual realities we are unfamiliar with. So instead of dumping the whole truckload on us at once, God starts in Genesis and starts building progressively, building, building, building. And you get through Genesis and you find out about creation and you find out about a man and you find out about our nature and you find out about God's nature. You find out about his holiness and our sin, and you find out about the sacrificial system which he instituted to provide temporary atonement for sin. And then you keep going, and now we're crossing over into the New Testament, and you find out the name of the sin bearer. You find out that those lambs of God were foreshadowings. I'm not going any further. This is it. <laughs> Revelations over there. You find out the name of the Lamb of God is Yeshua, is Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the One born in Bethlehem. And you know, so God says. God says to us, you know, all those lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. That would be such a foreign, strange notion, but a good God who is a master teacher. You see, builds that ultimate truth upon these. Uh, preliminary truths. For instance, you know about the temple in the Old Testament. Talk about the temple. God said Moses build a temple, this many cubits, and you know, it's scarlet, whatever. It's in Jerusalem. I'll meet with you there. You remember all that stuff? But then you get to the New Testament, and it says, "But you are a temple of the Holy Spirit." And you don't go, "I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it." You get, "Oh." The temple of old was the specific meeting place you established uh, uh, between yourself and us. And now you're telling me that when I asked you to come into my life, I became the meeting place. Your spirit, I don't go to a temple. It's not bricks and mortar anymore. Do you mean to tell me I carry around your spirit? You mean to tell me my whole life is supposed to be lived out as if I'm a... It's not just a Sunday deal or a Saturday deal. Can you see how Old Testament truth is just preliminary? Not to be discarded, it's very important, but it just moves us progressively to New Testament reality. That's why I say there's absolutely nothing new in the New Testament. It's just clearer. So when Micah wrote... He wrote about this special ruler who'll come who existed from eternity past but he doesn't tell us his name but then we get to the New Testament and this long anticipated ruler is named and his name is his name is Jesus So uh I'll tell you what happens in the rest of Micah chapter 5 I've uh, taken on purpose way Too much time on verse 2, on purpose, because it's so significant. So I'm just going to summarize verses 3 to 15. There are 15 verses. And the reason why I want to do this is, I told Brother Chuck I'd finished this chapter today, (laughs) so don't tell him I didn't. Just tell him, yeah, yeah, we went through every verse, absolute. Come on, be my friends. He's going to start us in Micah 6 next week. But let me just tell you about 3 to 15. Uh, verse 2 tells us where the Messiah is born. Verses 3 to 15 tell us what the Messiah will do. That's it. Verses 3 to 15. So let me just give you a few, uh, 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 summarize to you a few things about what the Messiah is going to do. One, he's going to restore and reunite Israel. They're carried off into bondage in Babylon. They'll be brought home. Ultimately, that took place on May 14th, 1948. The re-establishment of the modern state of Israel cannot be explained in any other terms but that God keeps his word. How does a dispersed people group, six million of whom uh, were burned in ovens, no country of their own, how do they come back to their ancient homeland? Do you know under discussion were, were even places in North Africa at the time? got to do something with these Jews after the Holocaust. They're just wandering around. The world's sympathy was aroused. There was a movement, actually, I think, to establish uh, Uganda as the homeland. Uh, but God's <laughs> God uh, contravened that decision. They have to go back to the land of Canaan because that's where he said they shall be. So they end up there May 14th, 1948. It's remarkable. It's inexplicable. That a people group dispersed from its land for 2,500 plus years is reconstituted as a nation and it, as it, it's never happened before. Is it because the Jews are so hot? No, the Jews are not. It's because God keeps his word. God keeps his word. So that one of the things the Messiah will do is restore and reunite the people. Then another thing he will do is he will purge his people of all kinds of sin. So here's the deal. Israel's military is first class. Un stinking believable Israel's military is unbelievable and the only reason why Israel has not yet been crushed entirely and attacked yet again is because Israel's neighbors uh, respect her military prowess a little too much it's an unbelievable military it has crushed foes uh, against reason and odds once Israel declared it was declared a state, May 14, 1948, the very next day, uh, strong Arab armies attacked. Please tell me how Israel survived that. They had nothing. And then you got all these wars, the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, all this stuff. Can you imagine? It's Christmas. It's Easter. Everyone's off and in churches, and we get attacked. Good night. That's the worst time to hit us. We're not, not all that prepared. So they hit, Israel's enemies hit on the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur. How in the world did they pull that off? Well, if you ask the average Israeli, they will tell you, our strong military. They're missing it. That is called idolatry. So you will read, if you care to, the rest of chapter 5, and you will see that God will crush Israel's military and her fortified cities. The metaphor used is Israel's chariots and horses. But we're talking about modern-day armament. Why? There's nothing wrong with a strong military. Thank God for ours. I pray that it stay that way. Wonderful budget cuts. Instead of cutting golf trips, we'll cut the military. Um, Anyway, Israel will lose... God will lose Israel's uh, idolatrous dependence on the strength of her military. She does not exist today. She is not sustained because of her strong military. She is where she is because the God of Israel kept his word. There's a second thing the text says God will purge Israel of, Jewish people of, false religion, counterfeit spirituality. So I got to tell you something. It pains my heart, but it's true. Do you know the cults? Cult groups are dis? Proportionately populated by my people. It's unbelievable. Do you remember this cult years ago in, of all places, Antelope, Oregon? The Rajneesh cult? Some guy from India sets himself up as who knows what in Antelope, Oregon, and to worship him, you got to buy him Rolls Royces. Remember all that deal? Over 60% of his followers were Jews. What's the deal with my people? What's happening? I'll tell you why. We have a Messiah-shaped hole in our heart. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first. And if we turn our backs from our Messiah, I don't care how successful we otherwise may be in life, something's missing on the inside. And we try desperately to fill it with all forms of counterfeit spirituality. It's unbelievable to me. Unbelievable. So the text says, God will remove your fortune tellers. What does that mean? You know what Israel's trying to do, Jewish people? They're trying to determine their future through all sources except the word of God. So I'm not talking about something as unsophisticated as tea leaves and uh, horoscopes, you know, stocks and prognostications and all, you know, absolutely trying to determine the future apart from any insight from God so as to ensure our sustenance. And God says, well, I'll purge you of all that too. And your poles, your carved poles, what was that? The Canaanites would carve their gods and Israel took them as their own. I will remove your Asherim. Asherah was the female consort of the primary Canaanite male god, Baal. Baal and Asherah got it together. And the Asherim were these figures of Asherah all on the high places, on poles, to be worshipped. You know what God said? Israel, when you go into the land, don't take their gods. I'm your God. What does Israel do? Takes the gods of the land and reject our own God. But God said, no, this special one, He will purge you of all that stuff. He will purge you. And there'll be a remnant one day of Jews. Remnant. Not all. Remnant. Who look upon him whom they have pierced. So says Zechariah. And recognize him as Messiah. So these are the things you'll see if you read it. Uh, The rest of Micah chapter 5 speaks about and It ends with the last verse, verse 15. Where this ruler judging the nations. Judging the nations. Uh, so, who are opposed to him and, and opposed to, to his people? So that verse gives me hope, and I'll tell you why. This is an extremely unsettling day in which we live. I'm uh, I'm 63 years old. I'll tell you about my birthday beforehand, so you can give me something. I'm 63. I've never lived in a day like this. It wasn't like this when I grew up. I just wasn't. We knew that marriage meant one man and one woman. Any alternative to it. (laughs) Now it's the Supreme Court's going to vote on what God created, on what God ordained. What? I don't know. In my days, there always was abortion, but not like today, out of convenience. just wasn't... I mean, there was always, there was sin in my day, but people in high places having affairs like it's, and then becoming commentators on news shows? What? I don't, I don't, these were not our heroes <laughs> when I, when I grew up. When I grew up, there were robberies and things like that. But the kind of senseless crimes you see today, Newtown, Connecticut, Aurora, Colorado. I know we just didn't see this. Are guns the problem? Come on. (sighs) Come on. We just didn't have any of this stuff. This is an unsettling day is what I'm getting at. Okay, all that bad stuff being said, relax. (laughs) Relax. Because the Most High God, who knows you by name, and you know by name, is seated on the throne. He's not lathered up a bit. He doesn't sweat. He doesn't consult the Houston Chronicle or figure out what's going on. He sees the end from the beginning, and some, the Psalms say two or three, I forget. The nations get together to, to, to defy me. He who sits on the throne in the heavens laughs. And you know him as personal savior and lord, if you do. So do I. He truly does have the whole world in his hands. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. But it's going to get better. Because the one born in Bethlehem, which one? In Judea, Bethlehem Ephrata, rules and reigns, is distinguished as being full of grace and truth, is holy, We'll judge wickedness in all places and will forgive even wicked people who ask him to. <clears throat> we'll come again, not as Lamb of God, but as Lion of Judah. Verse 15. <laughs> Verse 15. And we'll make all things new and wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, no longer Death. The first things have passed away. He shall make all things new. If you're in the embrace of this Messiah, you're in good hands. If you're not, you're in deep trouble. Jesus is not an afterthought. Micah spoke about him 700 years before he was born. Don't let him be an afterthought for you. Lord Jesus, we bow before you not just in our posture but in our hearts because you have distinguished yourself as being in a category of your own. The God-man, I don't know how that works. How do you remain fully God and yet be fully man, yet without sin? I don't know. I don't know. But God, why would I even worship someone who I fully comprehend? (laughs) I bow before you, we bow before you because you're incomprehensible and yet you have revealed enough to engender faith in you, submission, confidence to what you have provided for us so that we can be reconciled to you. And the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. We beheld his glory, Glory glorious of the only begotten son of God, full of grace and truth. Oh, God, we couldn't talk to you so easily now if you weren't full of grace. Thank you for not giving us what we deserve. That's what grace means. Thank you for giving us what we don't deserve. And truth. You say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Oh, God, we believe it, and it has transformed our lives. And we look forward now and forevermore, to worshiping you, you who are worthy of all praise. In this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you folks. Look, we're supposed to end at 1230. It's only 1218. Look at this. You came to the right class. Listen, Brother John is just getting warmed up, I'm telling you.